You're listening to Sunnyside Up, a B2B podcast that brings together real-world insights to help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we bring you the best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is transforming the way B2B companies go to market by enabling customers to embrace modern digital sales and marketing with a complete end-to-end suite of products. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Sunnyside Up. I'm your host, Katie Lang. Today, I'm really excited to talk to Patrick Moorhead on brand story innovation using MarTech. It's a really interesting topic. I think really super relevant to basically everybody right now. Our guest, Patrick, is the CMO at PriceFX. In this role, he's responsible for a lot, all aspects of brand marketing and communications, including public relations and social media, demand generation, paid media, content and product marketing, event production, and promotional materials. Patrick, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, so let's just get right in because I think there's a lot to talk about here. First, can you tell us about your concept of water versus plumbing? Yeah, happy to do that. I should caveat by saying this is not an original thought of my own. I have been friends and followed in a fanboy type mentor way, a gentleman named Rashad Tabakawala in the United States, who has had a long and illustrious career in the advertising business. And I had the occasion to get to know him when I was working in the ad business in Chicago more than a decade ago. And Rashad actually had come up with the idea of thinking about the relationship between channels and story as plumbing and water, where plumbing equals channels, the delivery method for story when it comes to marketing. And as digital marketing continue to evolve and really pick up momentum to become what is today, I think, the dominant or primary method by which marketers reach customers. Rashad came to this idea that plumbing posed a risk to marketers in that it created a situation where you could become obsessed and distracted by plumbing, the building of plumbing around operations of marketing to the detriment of story, which in his analogy equaled water. And his assessment of the challenge for modern marketers was essentially building enough plumbing to reach audiences effectively, but not getting distracted by the building of plumbing to the point where you ignored the quality of the water that would ultimately run through the pipes. Got it. Okay. I love, 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 love the analogies. I think, and you could also sort of helps dumb down and be relevant to a lot of different challenges that marketers are facing. So really helpful. So, and it seems like because you can get really bogged down in the plumbing and it's so important to have high quality water in the story, I guess, how, how can marketers use technology to tell better stories that connect with people? Yeah, I mean, that is the question, right? Right. The risk that the analogy outlines is that plumbing could be mistaken for story, meaning, 
a Facebook ad is not a story, right? Or a Twitter thread is not a marketing story or rich media ad unit that has a functionality to deliver some kind of interactive experience or mixed video with interactivity. The functionality is novel, but it is not a replacement for a story that is grounded in relevancy to the audience, that's grounded in value to the audience, and that's grounded in the brand positioning of the storyteller, right? The advertiser themselves. And I think the, the analogy is helpful from that perspective to understand where modern advertising technology can lead marketers astray by causing them to become distracted with the features and functionality of the plumbing itself and losing sight of what is it that we're really communicating to the audience? Are we solving a problem for them? Are we differentiating ourselves from our competitor? Are we articulating a clear value that is a reason for that audience to pay attention to the message? If the reason to pay attention to the message is where the message is being delivered, and how the message works, then that isn't a real reason at the end of the day for an audience to respond to anything that a marketer is saying. And I think that's so quality water is about, yes, take advantage of the channel. Yes, take advantage of the features and functionality afforded by this, you know, multiverse of delivery mechanisms currently available. But do not forget at the end of the day that marketing and advertising are sort of fundamentally about articulating your value to the person you hope will select you and buy from you. Right. Right. Cause it is, it's it, to your point. It's like, there's, there's so, there's so many benefits of the plumbing of the various channels. You got to do it right though, in terms of what the content is saying, what is the story saying? How are you connecting with people? So how do you get started with story, this idea of story innovation? You know, yeah. what does it include? Yeah. And I mean, I think it also could help our listeners to know how you and your team kind of kind of what you've implemented at your at price effects, because I think you guys have, yeah. have the right idea. So loaded question, but I guess, you know, how do you get started with, with yeah. this idea of story innovation? The simple answer is start there. I don't think there's a one way to do this, right? But make a start and be open to the idea that you will need to make decisions and evolve and learn how to create for the first time, maybe, or reformulate your brand positioning and the brand story and value articulation that you want to offer to your end users. It's not a... I don't, for me, and I think for PriceFX, it hasn't been an exercise in let's lock ourselves in a room for three months or six months. And when it's all done and perfect, we can unleash it and it will be obvious to us how to execute that in channels and implement that in systems and measure all of it the way that, that we want to measure it. It is an organic kind of living exercise. For us, 
you know, we fell victim to this exact problem. I think we, you know, I joined the company in uh, right at the beginning of 2019. And the company that I joined had a very elementary approach to marketing because we're a, a fairly new company, a small company by, you know, enterprise software company standards and growing fast, having a lot of commercial success because the product is actually terrific. It's the best product in, in the business for what we do. And the company had been growing significantly, like 80% year over year at the time that I joined, largely because a sales force that was just hustling on the ground and using legwork and street smarts to get meetings. And once the, the market saw the product, we were winning business hand over fist. To me, as a you know career marketer, walking into a company that has that situation and not a really sophisticated marketing and demand generation capability is kind of a dream job because I get to come in and from a blank sheet of paper design a system whereby you can sustain and accelerate the type of growth built on a rock solid product market fit foundation. So that's super exciting. Well, the flip side of that is that no automation existed, no you know systems and processes existed. There were two people working in marketing that were technically staffed under the sales organization when I joined. And so I, there really wasn't even a people organization around marketing at the company. The website had been neglected for a number of years and you know, not to anyone's fault here at PriceFX, but that's just sort of the nature of the beast when you have a high growth software business that's having a lot of commercial success. And to their credit, they realized, hey, we're not going to be able to go to the next level if we don't really take this marketing thing seriously. And lucky for me, they found me and I joined the company and, and got started with that. You know, as I went down the path of building V1 of marketing and price effects, we added a lot of systems and automation and measurement capabilities and plumbing to build the foundation of what we wanted to go to next. And we got to kind of the end of 2020. So that's, you know, a year and a half plus in my role into the job. I'd built a team of 14 people. We added a, a bunch of automation systems. We put funnel metric frameworks in. We started investing in paid media, all the things that a, a robust large-scale marketing organization would do when it started to dawn on me that we didn't have really clean water we had built we had built i think a world-class plumbing system mm -hmm. or at least we were well down the path of having a world-class plumbing system and i then turned my attention to like what are we going to do you know what do we need to do to activate that plumbing and really take advantage drive the metrics that we want and i realized wow our our water is cloudy you know, we, we don't have a crystal clear brand positioning statement. We don't have a really clear value articulation to the market. We don't have a crystallized ideal customer profile. We don't have a vertical industry strategy underneath an ideal customer profile to help us align a core brand story with a faceted brand narrative that meets the needs of different industry type customers. How on earth are we going to unleash this brilliant tech stack that we've built if we don't have that strategic understanding of what are we saying to who and why 
we have the how, but we need the other piece, right? And so we created a working group. I created a working group inside the company in the third quarter of last year with the simple charter of accomplishing and standardizing a V1 of all of those things. So we need a simple and clear one to two sentence brand positioning statement that says for what type of customers who want X and need Y, we are the blank name, you know, name the solution that we offer that does something really great, better than everyone else, right? And that's the, that was our sort of formula for brand positioning. And we have to, and that just can't be invented by marketing. It has to be probably driven by marketing, but we assembled a cross-functional group of stakeholders that included leadership from our customer success organization, obviously sales, pre-sales and solution strategy, sales operations and enablement, and obviously executive leadership as well to sort of bang on the exact words that we would use to formulate this brand positioning statement that ultimately would come to sort of guide all of the story creation that we wanted to do to activate the plumbing, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it can be deceptively simple, right? Today we have a brand positioning statement that is, I think it's 38 words total. And the, every word in that brand positioning statement is chosen and examined for, you know, why is it there? And how do we live in that? How does that word reflect what we want to be as a company and what our customers can expect from us? And does that word need to be there or not? And so you can, you can look at a really well done brand positioning statement and think, oh yeah, of course, you know, that's makes total sense. And that's exactly the reaction that you should have because if it's effective, it should be very simple and intuitive to grasp, but there is a ton of craftsmanship, I think, that goes into a really well done brand positioning statement. So having that in our bag, we then turned our attention to simplifying the product portfolio offering so that that also was intuitive and easy to grasp from the outside right? So how, what do I buy from you? How does it work? What does it do for me? Answering those questions led us to abandon the existing strategy around our product marketing, which was all around sort of modularity and mix and match functionality for customizability in the software and go to a very simple three package framework that ladders up to the brand positioning statement, which ultimately ladders up to the brand tagline. So you're, you're working to create this very, and again, I'm talking about us, but I think in general, yep. you're working to create a highly symmetrical, simple cascade from a brand message, price effects, plan, price, profit, into the brand positioning statement for enterprises facing pricing challenges who want to efficiently drive growth. Price effects is the enterprise pricing optimization and management mm -hmm. solution to allow you to plan price profit. That's the brand positioning. And then you get into the packaging, right? Where we have the plan package, which is all around pricing analytics, price package, which is all about price management and price setting. 
and the profit package, which is all about price delivery, CPQ, rebate management, channel and resale management, et cetera, et cetera. So we have now created a very simple way to understand what can I buy from PriceFX, and it matches to the promise of the brand positioning statement, and it's reflected in the top line brand itself of price effects, plan, price, profit, right? And so it looks simple and and sort of symmetrical and I humbly would say beautiful from the outside, yet behind the scenes, you know, that takes a ton of work to get there because by the time you're doing product packaging to reflect that, that has impacts in order forms and contracting and implementation and pricing of how we price the solution to our customers, right? So it can have a lot of complexity to arrive at an outward appearance of intuitive simplicity. Um, But I think you couldn't do the product marketing packaging work that we did, the simplification of what was nearly nine different modules of software into three discrete packages with really easy value messaging to the end user without having the guidance of that brand positioning statement. And so that's a very long answer to your question of the way to get started is get started. But then I think the way to get started is take it seriously, the idea that you need to arrive at a a way to answer the question, what does your company do? And in that answer, it can't just be descriptive of the products and services. It has to also include a philosophical promise potentially or an articulation of what should the customer buy and believe about your company and also what does the what kind of product is it and what does it do and who is it for and and you know why should they need and want it or how does it meet their needs and wants. I think if you put the work into that the work pays off for a long way down the road as you build into then, you know, for us, product marketing, but then executing story against that whole stack of stuff. And so that by the time we're getting to what's our message for the process chemical industry in the United States regarding our pricing management capability, we can take advantage of all of that groundwork by saying, okay, well, in the chemical industry, price management actually has these unique characteristics or features. And for us, what that means is that when we talk about price management, we should talk about our price package and we should talk about it in terms of efficiency gains through centralization or something like that. And then we can go and say, okay, now we wanna talk about efficiency gains through centralization, with flexible price management and the chemical pricing industry. And the best place to reach those people is through discovery ad units on LinkedIn, right? (laughs) It all comes back. Right. And then (laughs) finally, now we're at the faucet, right? Where (laughs) we can turn on the faucet on LinkedIn and we can know that we have water coming out of that faucet that is delicious and, and appetizing and drinkable to the chemical industry and measure it and and see how effective it is and tweak and tailor it. And I think, you know, to bring it all the way back around, I don't know if you could get to that level of effectiveness if you started out with LinkedIn discovery ads are really great, according to LinkedIn, and we should do LinkedIn discovery ads. Right, right, right. Like, okay, so that is, it's so interesting. It's like this idea of, you know, brand 
this kind of brand position as your North Star. And then it's sort of work, not organically because a lot of work goes into it, but it does sort of cascade from there. So that storytelling or this clear water is attainable. You can actually have these sort of compelling stories by use case or by vertical or by... So, so I guess my question is, because this is like, uh, from a sales leader perspective, this is a dream for, for sellers too, to like have a very clear story. What are we trying to solve for? And what are we, what's the perspective we're taking? And then also around pricing and packaging to have something simplified. Amazing. You know, um, right. I just, this is my last question on price effects. Cause I'm really just interested yeah. in, in what you've done. Yeah. Yeah. What was the kind of initial result? Like how did sales, Mm -hmm. did it, did it really impact sales even more positively? Cause they're already having success. Like I guess just high level kind of what, what did you see from a measurement standpoint? It didn't work at first. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, Why? Well, because there is this, this sort of invisible last mile in that formula that I also think is often overlooked by marketers, right? Which is at the end of the day, if marketing can create beautiful, amazingly rich brand stories and value narratives and all of the things that I've spent time on the show describing so far. But at, at the end of it, if the sales team on the ground doesn't find use for that, in the context of engaging with customers, driving to contract and close, then they won't use it. Right, right. And it won't matter how beautiful anything that marketing has done is if at the end of the day, it's not helping salespeople close revenue in the opinion of salespeople, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, is the classic tension of sales adoption of marketing stuff. And so I think we, we found ourselves at the beginning of 2021 feeling really happy and proud of we had rebuilt our website and relaunched our website in the early part of, of this year of 2021, really done sort of customer forward, customer first messaging. We had launched high gloss, you know, three package product marketing strategy that was pinned by this brand positioning statement and user pathways on the website all driven off of our ideal customer profile work and marketing and done all this implementation work. And we found that the sales team sort of had the reaction of, you know, ah, it's beautiful. Like I, I really love our marketing at price effects, but it's not helping me close this deal that I'm in. And, you know, marketing can come back to that conversation and say, well, look at all the traffic we're driving on the website and look at all the lead conversion action we're driving in the upper and mid funnel. And the sales organization can say, that's awesome. Keep doing that. But I am, here's the stuff I'm using to close my deal. Mm. (laughs) Right. And it, some of it, (laughs) no, I I don't want to say they're going rogue. They're doing their job. Right. And so I I avoid this idea that marketing sort of sets this messaging strategy and then sales is going rogue. I'd I'd rather see it as if sales is finding difficulty using the outputs of marketing to do their job, which is close business and drive revenue, then marketing really hasn't finished the work. And so we have now 
started down what I what I would call the last mile of this whole journey at PriceFX, which is the creation of a content marketing strategy that is built around the idea of revenue content, meaning content marketing that makes money, that content marketing that sales uses to make money, right? So rather than like thought leadership for the sake of brand awareness or, you know, share a voice gains, we are now actively developing a strategy internally, which is all about the idea that sellers and marketers collaborate. And the way they collaborate is that sales tells marketing, I wish I had this to use with my customer, or I answer this question every time I get into a sales cycle with a customer over and over again. And I always answer it the same way. Or I wish when my customer asked me questions about this pricing or implementation or ROI, that I had a go-to answer for them that was always the same so that I didn't have to spend the time every time educating them. And we are using that as we're taking that approach of listening a lot to the people in the field and then developing content marketing strategy to give them what they want, right? So that the output of marketing is not being received in sales as hello from marketing. We've created a new one page sell sheet and this should be used here and there and blah, blah, blah. Rather, we want to create the relationship where sales says, ah, I've been waiting waiting for whatever it is, 10 days for marketing to give me back the thing that I told them I needed that has now been run through all of that other stuff, brand positioning and product packaging and ICPs and everything that marketing provides, right? But the output of that is an artifact, an asset that the salesperson ultimately requested from marketing because they need it, because they want to use it in a sales cycle, Right. And they get a hold of it and they go, ah, finally, I don't have to get on the phone with every prospect and explain to them how a standard implementation looks. I can send them this PDF or I can have them watch this video or whatever it is. And their words, their voice is the content marketing. The seller's voice is the content marketing. And what we think is going to happen, what's interesting, right, is that not only will the salespeople then use marketing outputs actively in service of closing their deals, but new prospects, when we publish this stuff online, find that information highly useful as well. And it drives engagement and trust and ultimately conversion or to feed the middle and upper funnel, as well as working in the low funnel deal cycles for sales themselves. Ugh, that is that is amazing. And it's so interesting. We're facing a lot of the same challenges. And it's a it's a dream for a seller to, to have marketing partners say, okay, 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 we hear you, but let us go back and make sure it fits within our brand messaging, our kind of that cascade, because we gotta make sure we're having this unified message and you know. Yeah. So that so the fact that, you know, because there's there are organizations where it's no, 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 we've done our job but you got to just deal with what you have. And then they do go rogue. So this is so key. Okay. So, so this idea of using this content marketing, it's sort of like revenue generated content marketing, kind of a a layer below thought leadership. It gets probably more Mm -hmm. tactical, a little like, you know, how, how do I do this as a buyer? Mm -hmm. And 
so I guess like bringing us back to what we were originally talking about that this evolution, you know, with, with story innovation, water plumbing, and this now introduction of sort of new content marketing for sellers, like what has this evolution done to the relationship between sales and marketing today? So, I mean, I'm assuming that content really helped sales, but, and correct me if I'm wrong, but how does that kind of introduction of this new content marketing yeah. and everything else so impact? We, we think it will. Yeah. Katie. So we're, we have not yet launched this phase of the revenue content marketing strategy. We are, it's in the oven right now. And so we're collecting all of the feedback from our salespeople and sort of synthesizing that into the content marketing plan and determining like how we will address the things that the salespeople are asking us to provide them in the context of all of the you know, brand and positioning and customer profile stuff. And then we'll start to roll it out. And, but our hypothesis is that when we start to roll this content strategy out, it will shorten sales cycles for sellers. It will save a bunch of time for sellers because they will be able to, you know, I hesitate to say automate, but they will be able to accomplish a ton of customer and prospect education with standardized approaches and materials, right? So rather than having a slate of 20 calls that you have to do in a week for a salesperson, and you know that the bulk of those calls, questions about implementation timelines and best practices in, you know, price strategy set up in the software, and you're going to have to talk through all that, you can send it all out in advance, ask the customer to read it, and then your calls become, hey, what was, what questions did you have about what I sent you? right? It's a very different type of call that our sellers are going to do. So it's, it's better qualified. It can lead to, we think, higher contract values and shorter cycles in closing. And the money that's being invested is a fraction of what you would invest in just buying conversion on paid media, right? right? Because right. Uh, we're, I'm not going to say it's free because we're spending resources internally, time and people to adopt that strategy and create all that stuff. But it, it can become, we, we think it's going to become the key to sort of unlocking a new level of efficient revenue growth in the company. So, and it remains to be seen about whether or, 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 right. or not, because we haven't launched it yet. But the answer to your question is it has reversed in some ways, the relationship between sales and marketing, right? right? Because in a good way, in the best way possible, right? That, you know, there's been this age old sort of tension, you know, sales and marketing and marketing is a steward of the brand, but sales drives the business and they don't see eye to eye and marketing ships a pitch deck and sales, you know, gets trained on it, but then they wind up making their own version of it because they know that what customers really want to understand are these things, which marketing didn't provide them, blah, blah, blah. Yep. So we're trying to tackle that problem head on by saying like, well, let's let's never have marketing make something that sales didn't order specifically. Not just I need a pretty pitch deck, but I want a pitch deck that answers these questions. I want to tell the story this way. I want to, my customers want the value described like this, and I need the materials to work like that. And our job in marketing is to say, okay, we can do that and do all the invisible labor, right, of making sure that it matches with the whole canvas of everything else that we want to do out in the world. And then there's some mind shifts that go along with that, 
right? So one mindset shift that we are growing into at PriceFX is the idea that the website is the primary selling tool, period. And I think this has been an idea in the business for a long time, right? That the the website is the front door to the store, right? Yeah. And everyone says that. So it's more than that, though. Yes, the website is the first place that prospects go to try to understand who you are and, and what they can buy from you. But I think there's been a default from marketing for a long time that like, if you can get people to the website, then your job is sort of to convert their interest into qualification and then hand them over to sales. And I think we're interested in the idea that the website becomes the primary selling tool for the sales organization, meaning sales is ordering content marketing from marketing. We're producing that that we're delivering those orders via the website. And then the sales team is actually using the website to sell. So the sales team is actually evolving this behavior of, hey, customer, our, for our next call, I know you had some questions about implementation timelines for price effects. Before we get on the call, can you visit this part of our website and review this information and watch this video? Because then we'll be able to talk about specifics for you as opposed to me explaining all this stuff to you on the call right and sending them actual specific pages or videos or whatever from the website via email or chat or however they're communicating with the customer that is that type of shift right where now the website is the resource for sales in the way that they're building the relationship with the customer versus just the website being the front door to the store where customers walk in and we capture their name and email address and plug them into Salesforce. And then, you know, good luck salesperson with the rest of the deal. We're, we're reacting very strongly to this data that has been accumulating for years, which is, you know, it's not top secret data, but because we all do it, right? Which is, we don't want to actually engage with salespeople all that much, particularly in a business context. Anybody who's buying software for, for work is shopping websites, trying to do online demos, trying to watch videos, looking at customer reviews, trying to figure out pricing all in advance. And so we've been operating from the idea that the relationship is flipped. Actually, marketing is primarily driving revenue, and that's because the customer actually wants to talk with a salesperson only really after they've made the decision to buy from us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so for, for salespeople, that's kind of a tough pill to swallow, right? And, and because you can swallow it in a way that says, ah, salespeople are irrelevant. That isn't true. Salespeople are not irrelevant. But let's not pretend that the customer buying behavior hasn't changed pretty dramatically. A salesperson is needs to change from being this old model, right, which is sort of convince the buyer to buy to this new world where the customer they're meeting is actually already convinced themselves. And the way they've convinced themselves is by educating themselves online on the website. Right. And so sales now, rather than convincing the customer to buy through meetings and phone calls and flying to their office and taking them out to dinner, has to now convince them by collaborating with marketing to produce content on the website so that that customer can digest that content, qualify themselves, make the decision to buy on the website. And once they've made the decision to buy, then engage with the salesperson to say, how do I specifically buy this from you? Right. 
Right. Okay. And so it's very different. It's so different. And it's, and it really does shift the, the, the responsibility of sales internally first, like, Hey, partners in marketing, this isn't resonating. We, you know, we need X, Y, and Z or, but I would say too, though, like if price effects is obviously leader in this, in this sort of new way, competitors of yours that aren't doing this, they're at a complete disadvantage because these buyers, you're right, buyers, B2B buyers don't want to be wined and dined. I mean, we can't be anymore. They, they want to learn on their own. So it almost forces everyone to adopt this new way of, of selling through the website with content. Yeah. 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 I think that's right. You know, the, the masters of this in the marketing and sales and marketing universe is HubSpot. Yep. Right. I mean, again, we're not we're not inventing an original strategy of price effects. We're just bringing it into our industry where it hasn't existed before. But HubSpot's entire success story is about this. Right. It's about the idea of, hey, we're the challenger map system, right? Marketing automation platform. We're the challenger CRM. And there is no way that we're going to be able to outspend or outbrand Salesforce. Right. (laughs) Or. Adobe. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So our only option is build a trust relationship with the customer. Mm -hmm. And rather than do that in a didactic way, which is HubSpot is the thought leader, you know, and let us, let us explain to you mere marketer, how the world of modern CRM should work. Right. And what HubSpot did was rather than, than take that, you know, didactic sort of quote unquote thought leadership approach. They just got busy with like, well, what are the questions that buyers of CRMs ask? And let's just answer those good and bad, even if it doesn't make us look particularly good. And whatever it is, eight, 10 years on now, if you execute a Google search for sort of any sales and marketing related topic, and probably a HubSpot blog post is going to come up in the top organic search results, right? For anything like, how do I make a marketing budget? What's an example of a, of a brand positioning statement? How do I create an ideal customer profile or how do I use an ideal customer profile or how to hire a content marketer? HubSpot has just been methodically and patiently answering those type of questions on their website for years. Yeah. They have completely overwhelmed. I mean, there's no way that any of their competitors can catch up with them in organic search. They own the conversation around sales and marketing because they've been producing the content that answers the questions that buyers want answers for. And it's absolutely amazing what they were able to do there. And so I think, you know, stick with the winners, right? Right. right. <laughs> and that's what we're going to do <laughs> yeah. is try to try to replicate that in pricing, which is a, you know, a much smaller, more niche marketplace. And it's, it's got its own kind of nuance, but you know, can we, can we just, if we could capture a fraction of what HubSpot was able to do with their content marketing in our universe, that's going to mean dramatic things for, for our business, right? Totally. To become and the revenue the center. Yeah. I, I talk with my team a lot about the idea that pricing as a discipline is very complicated and specialized and, and it's a relatively small universe when you compare it to like CRM. But I also think that there are a lot of pricing professionals who are at their desk today who are who don't know the answers to 
questions that they feel like they should or that their organization feels like they should, mm -hmm. right? And if you go and do execute a Google search for like common price management strategy, today there isn't, there isn't a reliable answer to that question available online, not even from us, but there should be. And the person that publishes the answer to that question, whether or not the, you know, the person that publishes the answer to that question is going to win a lot of favorable trust right. from the pricing industry just for having done it. Even with readers who are customers of other pricing solutions, right? And I, and I think if you run that play over and over again, you can evolve to become the HubSpot of your industry by owning the center of the conversation because you're just providing plain and simple, trustworthy answers to questions that people in your business care about. Yeah. Solving that, solving that need, solving the problem. And the first one to do it, at least in your space. And something tells me price effects <laughs> will be there. So, well, this was amazing. So such interesting points that you've made. And I think will be relevant for a lot. I mean, I, uh, speaking personally, we're going through something, a similar sort of exercise. And I've learned a lot just by talking to you that I am excited to take back to my CMO and the other leaders. So thank you so much. This is, this has been, it's been my pleasure. Great. Yeah. I do have to ask just because you have so much useful knowledge in your head. Is there a <laughs> book or blog or newsletter? Like what is your sort of go-to content that you would recommend to our listeners? Oh, wow. Um, I'm sure it's a lot, but like what, you know, what's around this topic? Yeah. You know, to be honest with you, I, I spend a lot of time reading Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I worked at Twitter, full disclosure. And one of the things that I learned at Twitter was how to use Twitter. I don't know if everyone gets access to that information, but the information that I got about how to use Twitter is curate your feed towards what you want to learn about, mm -hmm. right? Meaning follow people who are publishing stuff on Twitter that you want to click in and read and learn about, right? Follow the people out there who are doing the stuff that you wish you were doing is another way to think that. And curate your feed around that. Don't have your Twitter feed be like, oh, you know, I'm following these celebrities, but then I'm also following this cooking show and then I'm, I'm following the news and that can be difficult, right? So decide what you want to learn there and, you know, stick with the winners, like follow around the people that are executing content marketing that you envy or that seem to really have a bead on the ins and outs of plumbing MarTech systems and I look at Twitter every day. I constantly am learning from people who are way smarter than me on the platform about the things that I am interested in. Okay. Okay. That's very helpful. Yeah. Three people in B2B tech who either lead, you know, go to market, ABM, like that you yeah. recommend we bring on. I mean, they don't necessarily need to be the people that you follow on Twitter, but... <laughs> Yeah, Are there, yeah. Is there anybody in your network that you recommend kind of doing what you just did? We, we work with a handful of agencies that, that I really love. And so a gentleman named Chris Marr at Impact Agency is really my partner when it comes to executing this content marketing strategy. Okay, awesome. Um, he's a super interesting character and uh, really brilliant in the way that he understands how to operationalize content marketing. 
If you could get her, I would say Leslie Berland at Twitter. She's the CMO at Twitter. I think she's just absolutely brilliant in the way that she is weaving together the culture of Twitter internally in the company with the way the platform works and sort of what it means in the world. This open, inclusive dialogue and and the uh, empowerment of individuals through the collective power of voice she, she is really, I think, a, an incredibly visionary marketer. Mm, I love that. Ways. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, Chris and Leslie, we will, we will, we'll try to get them. And then, last question: What is the preferred way for people to get connected with you? Because I have a feeling that you will have some followers after this. <laughs> uh, Twitter. I love Twitter. You can okay. follow me on Twitter. My handle is at shy media guy. It's C H I like Chicago. So at C-H-I-M-E-D-I-A-G-U-Y, at Shy Media Guy. Well, thank you, Patrick. This was thank you. This was so much fun. Likewise, I enjoyed it very much. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand Based TV. 